God didn't need Abraham to sacrifice his son to appease God. <coughs> Instead, Yahweh God showed up for Abraham in a different way. A reading from Genesis chapters 21 and 22. Yahweh was gracious to Sarah as had been foretold and did what had been promised. Sarah conceived and gave birth to a child for Abraham who was now in old age at the very time God had promised. They named the child Isaac. After these events, God tested Abraham. Abraham, God called. Here I am, Abraham replied. Take your son, God said, your only child, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, seeing. Offer him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will point out to you. Rising early the next morning, Abraham saddled a donkey and took along two workers and his son Isaac. Abraham chopped wood for the burnt offering and started on the journey to the place God showed them. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to the workers, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and come back to you. Abraham took wood for the burnt offering and gave it to, the, to Isaac to carry. In his own hands, he carried the fire and the knife. Then the two of them went on alone. Isaac said, Father, here I am, my child, Abraham replied. Here are the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, my child, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Then the two of them went on together. When they arrived at the place God pointed out, Abraham built an altar there and arranged wood on it. Then he tied up his son Isaac, put him on the altar on top of the wood, Abraham stretched out his hand and seized the knife to kill the child. But the angel of God called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not raise your hand against the boy, the angel said. Do not do the least thing to him. I know now how deeply you revere God, since you did not refuse me your son, your only child. Then looking up, Abraham saw a ram caught by his horns in the bush. He went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of the child. Abraham called the place God provides. And so it is said to this day, on this mountain, Yahweh provides. Now hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We often end scripture readings in this way. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. But thanks be to God for this. Today's scripture challenges that verse in 2 Timothy, which claims all scripture is inspired by God 
and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But I struggle to recognize as God the voice at the start of Genesis 22, which here commands a son, a father to kill his son in order to demonstrate ultimate devotion. Taking these verses on the level of fact would ask us to shelve a morality so fundamental that it shows up in the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. We must question and challenge the divine command here, lest we encourage others to claim God-given license to commit murder because they believe they might have heard God say so. The God we know in Jesus Christ does not ask such things. So we're best to be on our guard when the Bible starts to make it sound otherwise. Perhaps this story exists for us not for instruction, go and do likewise, but instead for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Sometimes instead of a roadmap to follow, the Bible gives us a warning of where not to go. We meet Abraham and Sarah about 10 chapters earlier in Genesis, after stories about the Tower of Babel, the Great Flood, and other examples of human inability to truly hear or to follow God's voice. God speaks to these nomads then in the Babylonian land Ur of the Chaldeans, commanding Abram and Sarai to leave all that they've ever known and go to a land where God will show you. The only guide they have in the journey is God's promise of two things, land and children. That's the nature of God's covenant. They go throughout the region that we now call the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia until they arrive in what is now Palestine. They grow prosperous in their decades of travel and so can fill this abundant, rich countryside with their kin and relations. By the time we come to this part of Genesis, God's first promise of land has come true. But the second of descendants isn't even a twinkle in their eyes yet. God's promised descendants to them, as numerous as the stars in the heaven or as the grains of sand on the seashore, but Abram and Sarai are barren and are now so old that having children is out of the question. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of the nations. But he's 99 years old, please. The name change starts to sound a little like mockery. When divine visitors earlier than this story come to tell the couple that old Sarah will have a baby next year, she laughs out loud. But when the baby arrives, that's precisely what Sarah calls the child, Isaac which means laughter. This joyful, laughing child is the fulfillment of God's promise and of a lifetime of prayer and following God's voice. So what is it? What in the world comes over Abraham that he decides he must sacrifice Isaac? The text says that this is God's test, but I wonder what other voices he might have been hearing. 
a voice that Abraham mistook for God? I hope so. A voice, a macho inner voice, that wanted to demonstrate that he is willing to do anything for God, no matter what. A voice that fears the tenderness of love now in his life, that suspects that he's not worthy of such joy. A voice that would protect itself by destroying the vulnerability that this tender child represents. Abraham thinks he hears the voice of God, but these other voices seem more likely to me and to millennia of Jewish and Christian interpreters who have looked at this story. Nevertheless, Abraham follows the path that we've heard laid out, and he commits a terrible sin, causing a child terror as the moment of sacrifice approaches is second only to the blasphemy of claiming that such murder is God's will. In the words of another, Abraham, the father of monotheism, is revealed as a man who can walk his own son to the altar and even wield the blade himself. We don't sacrifice children these days to prove our faithfulness to God, thankfully. But there are other ways that a misguided diligence and extreme obedience would seek to squash God-given life and potential. A free-spirited child, perhaps, is commanded to get his exuberant play under control. A person struggling with an eating disorder believes that she's never good enough and so tries to vanish from sight. A dutiful lawyer's nine to five becomes seven to nine, and she sacrifices life with loved ones or the things that bring joy in order to get ahead. A religious dogmatist proclaims that only his way is right, but has lost all sense of the Holy Spirit's mystery and awe. A hypervigilant adherent to political tribes enforces conformity to social norms rather than risking free thought. The culture of buy more, rest less keeps Americans so frenzied that we forget our own powers of creation, our own need to rest and find Sabbath. Inner voices tell us not to be ourselves, but to clip our wings and not fly high so as to fit in. There are all sorts of voices that we might listen to that might lead us astray. Indeed, Abrahams abound wherever expectations of conformity and performance are so extreme that laughter dies, that Isaac dies, and we become our own killjoys. I've been there. How many times? Have we prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation, O God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, though, for this, for the voice that Abram does hear next. Abraham, Abraham, an angel of the Lord's voice, pierces the old man's haze of deadly piety. Do not harm the boy. I wonder if that's where God first shows up in this story, when the angel speaks to stop the killing here. 
God has no desire for joy. God brought the laughter into being in the first place. Sacrifices first began to establish loyalty and relationship with the divine, but sacrificial piety to the point of death brings no pleasure to God. Hence, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy, your life or the life of any other. Do not harm, but do good instead. Centuries after Abraham, the Hebrew prophets also in the Old Testament understood another meaning of sacrifice. Sacrifice is not killing something valuable, but rather taking on the hard work of righteousness. The prophet Hosea puts it this way, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with burnt offerings or calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Micah asks. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. The prophet replies as the voice of God. God has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what true faithfulness looks like, giving the best of oneself and one's life to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. This is what our God requires of us, the sacrifice which leads to life rather than death. For millennia, Jews, Christians, and Muslims have lauded Abraham, our common ancestor, as a model of resolute, no-holds-barred faith, willing to do absolutely anything. Despite my misgivings about this story, I do still revere Abraham. He's a flawed human being, we find here, who follows God long after most would have given up. He also has the good sense to realize, thanks be to God, that what he assumed was God's will was not in fact God's will. And yet he shows an ability to change his ways and follow God, saving the boy's life. And Abraham's not the only or here even the best example of stalwart faith in the model of Micah. Alongside faithful Abraham, let's include others whose humble hard work for justice and kindness lead to life. Let's look to them for what sacrifice looks like, sacrifice that pleases God rather than killing joy, to the child breaking a sandwich and giving half to a hungry classmate, sacrifice, to a person leading a community training and helping people engage in democracy, to the frontline workers risking their health in providing food, care, or healing to others. To the idealist standing on a corner collecting signatures for this or that initiative. Or the person living in recovery for decades so that their family members and themselves might be spared the chaos of active alcoholism. The elder whose prayerful support spills over into letters of encouragement and love. Each of these actions is sacrifice. Each of them costs something. 
and those who do them give generously. And these sacrifices come from a more generous and life-giving place than a closed-fisted determination to do no matter to do no matter what. God asks, even if it were to cost the greatest commandment, love for God and love for self and neighbor. So what makes for true joy in your life? What makes for joy in the world? Where is Isaac? Laughter being born for us. Follow that. Sacrifice to bring that into full bloom. That's what the Lord commands and what we seek as our purpose here, sharing the joy of Christ's love by welcoming and serving. Don't sacrifice laughter, but expand the things that lead to laughter, justice, kindness, and life-giving compassion. Thanks be to God, yes. Thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God, after all. Amen.